couple of snakes wrapped around a pole with wings at the top. It is an almost universal symbol of healing. You see it on the side of ambulances, you see it in hospitals, you see it on doctors and insignias. And you wonder, snakes of all things, how did this become a symbol of healing? It's called the caduceus, and according to Greek mythology, the staff was carried by Hermes, uh, the, the serpents, I forget exactly how the serpents come into the story, but uh, they were meant to bring peace and overcome disease. Yet long before there were Greeks and snakes and mythological storytelling, there were the children of Israel in Numbers chapter 21, this passage that Jonathan just read. They complained against God and Moses, saying, Why did you drag us out of Egypt to die in this God-forsaken wilderness? There's no decent food here. There's no water. Then God sent poisonous snakes among the people. Many died. And they came to Moses and said, We have sinned. Ask God to relent. And God said to Moses, Make a, a serpent, put it on a flagpole, and whoever is bitten and looks at it will live. As I said, it's one of the strangest passages of the Old Testament, but the reality is it gets even stranger because very few people, like hardly anybody, realizes that this is the context for the most famous verse in all the Bible, John 3, 16. In verse 15, Jesus cites Moses and the snake. We'll begin reading in verse 13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Amen. Three points today. The very first is the poison. Why are these children of Israel complaining in the wilderness? Yes, it was a desert. Yes, they had no natural food supply. Yes, they were thirsty and tired. Uh, okay, we get that part. But it's not as though God didn't provide for them. Every morning, He, he gave them this stuff, the stuff, the Hebrew is called manna. It was meant to sustain their lives. You ask, well, what is manna? It was bread from heaven. It was miraculous bread from heaven. It was this sweet-to-the-taste substance that you would grind up almost in the form of like flour that you could use for baking bread, unleavened bread. And so it was a sweet bread, but maybe the equivalent of like Hawaiian bread. And all they had to do was walk outside every morning, and they would be able to gather up as much of the bread from heaven that they would need for the day. All the supply, every last bit of food supply that was needed to sustain their lives in the middle of nowhere. It was God's daily miraculous commitment to them that I love you, I will feed you, I will be your lifeline in the desert. And so how did the children of Israel respond to such a gift? They said, we hate it. We hate this food. We hate it. We hate our lives out here. We hate our leader, Moses. We hate everything about this place. We hate everything about our circumstances. And what they were saying, in fact, was, it doesn't matter, God, if you provided bread from heaven, because bread from heaven is not enough. Like, nutritious meals seven days a week, 
you know, quail, manna, it's not enough. It's, and, and, and no matter what God has done for us, the heart will always ask, but what have you done for me lately? What have you done for me lately? Sure, fine, you did that yesterday, but Lord, I've already moved on. Um, what about today? And, and there's the poison. Now this poison did not originate in Numbers chapter 21. You have to go to the beginning of the Bible where you find the first two human beings are living in what the Bible describes as this like garden paradise, a garden world called Eden, where there too they had daily provision of food. They had all they could possibly eat. They could eat from any of the trees. They had daily access to God. They had it, they had it all. But a serpent comes and whispers in their ear, it's not enough. Like, see all that you're missing? See what God is withholding from you? See how bad you actually have it? Like, for food from God is not enough. Access to God is not enough. Even paradise itself, not enough. There was an author who, at the age of 40, made a bucket list of all the things he hoped to do and achieve. It included writing two books, becoming a newspaper columnist, teaching at a top university, traveling and giving lectures and speeches around the world, and, and who knows, like climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, that's always on people's bucket lists. By the age of 48, eight years later, he said, I realized that I'd accomplished every item on my list, every one of them, and none of them brought me the lasting joy that I envisioned. Each accomplishment, each one thrilled me for a day, or a week, or maybe a month, but never more. I think that's something can't we all relate to? Um, it was sung so well by um, Mick Jagger, Rolling Stones. I can't get no satisfaction, but probably speaking, what he really should have sung was, I can't keep no satisfaction. Because when you reach the thing that you've been shooting for, the career success, um, the, the, the beautiful wife, the, the, the adoring husband, the, the, the new home, the, I mean, whatever it is, the, the, the academic success, um, you find that it does satisfy you in the short term. It is nice. It's a great fun. It just doesn't last. And it never completes you the way that it promised to complete you. It's like no matter how fast you run, you never arrive. It's like you're a, you're a hamster on a treadmill, and you're running, and you're running, and you know that this is the next block, and this, this is the next hurdle, and this is the next but you never arrive. There's a sickness inside of every human heart that says whatever I have is not enough. And so perhaps that's the reason God sent poisonous serpents is to teach the children of Israel the seriousness of the disease. I mean, you can have a headache and you can have a headache because you didn't sleep very well last night or you can have a headache because the barometric pressure has changed. And you got, but you can also have a headache because you have a brain tumor because there's malignant cells inside me eating you away. And he sends poisonous servants to teach them that you got, you got a cancer inside of you. And to show them the trajectory that they are on. Because if miraculous bread from heaven is not enough, if access to the living God is not enough, then what will be enough? Nothing will be enough. Nothing will be enough, and that's the poison. There runs to the soul. Number two, the anti-venom in the story is, I mean, of all the bizarre ways, build a bronze serpent, put it up on a flagpole, 
set it up on a hill, and that is going to be how the anti-venom is, is displayed. And I think of all the different ways God could have done this that would have made a whole lot more sense. He could have made you know, some plant miraculously grow up out of the desert sins. Um, they could have been used for some medicinal purposes, like maybe ground up and put into a potion, maybe turned into a topical ointment. He could have done something like that. That makes sense. A miraculous plant. I mean, if he was absolutely determined to, to do an animal, then why not a sacrificial animal? One that the people were at least familiar with, like a, a goat or a ram or a lamb, a sacrificial animal. Why a snake? Like of all things, a giant reddish snake. Like what could this possibly mean? I'll tell you what it means. He was forcing them to face that which is afflicting you. You must face the thing that is afflicting you. When they look over that bronze serpent, it, it forced them to stare at the very thing, the thing that was killing them. And, you know, if you talk to any doctor or therapist, they will tell you that's the hardest place to lead a patient. Because no one truly wants to face down whatever it is that is afflicting them. No one wants to, no one wants to confront their own demons. And one of the marks of addiction is the tolerance effect, in which an addict needs greater and greater doses of a drug to get the same sensation. But when you go to them and you tell them, hey, you got a problem, or you're drinking too much, what do they say? Well, I drink, but, but I'm not controlled by it. I'm not that bad off. I, I'm not an alcoholic. Or maybe they even they turn the tables on you and they say, well, yeah, I have a problem, and the problem is with you people. It's with you. Why does that happen? Because we all hate to face our demons. Or imagine an aging man who's losing his hearing, and he's in denial about it. He says, well, it's not my hearing. It's just that everybody in the room mumbles. Other people are mumbling. Well, finally, his wife gets him to get his hearing tested, and the test clearly showed that he needs hearing aids. But when he finds out what they cost, he says, well, we can't afford this. Or when he puts them into his ears, he says, these are, these are far too uncomfortable because he won't confront the problem. Are we any different? I think every human being should have to grapple with this honest question. Do you know what it is that's killing you? And if you don't know what it is that's killing you, more than likely the people around you could answer that question because they see. The people around us see. Just like the, the addict, the people around the addict, they can see. And the shopaholic, the people around them, they, they can see. The hoarder who is stashing things, they can see. The people around them can see. Would, would you want to see if you actually could see what it is that's killing you? Jesus is going to show us in a second. If we could read Hebrew, we would pick up on this. Like in our English translations, in John 3, I'm sorry, Numbers 21, it says that God sent venomous snakes among them. But in the Hebrew, it literally reads fiery serpents. And some of your translations have that. Of fiery serpents. And the Hebrew word that they use is, is this word seraph. Or, or seraphim. Seraphim is the plural of seraph. Later when it says that Moses put a snake up on the pole, in Hebrew it reads that he put a seraph up on the pole. And you say, well, why is that important? Well, because the seraphim, the seraphs, 
or seraphim plural, were an order of angels. In the Bible, seraphim were fire angels. They're cloaked in fire. And we believe that Satan was very likely originally a seraph. He too, a fire angel. One third of the angels joined with Satan, and together they declared war on God, determined to be their own gods, that they would not worship the one true God, that they themselves should be gods. And there was a great battle, we think, in heaven. Satan and the third of the angels were defeated and cast out of heaven to earth, and they came to earth with the same purpose, to be treated as gods, to rule down here. I say that sounds a little fanciful, but does it, does it really? And there are two opposite extremes we can go regarding demons, fallen angels. One is to disbelieve in their existence entirely. The other is to have an unhealthy obsession with them. But we don't want to say everything is Satan and demons. They're behind everything. But we also want to say that nothing is due to Satan and demons. Because we should. We, we ought to acknowledge that there is a world behind this world. There is a world that we do not see that impacts and affects the world that we do see. That behind this world are very real, very powerful, fallen, angelic, demonic spirit beings who serve as like puppet masters behind the earthly powers of this world, okay, pulling the, the strings of, well, here the Roman Empire, or, or, or there the next empire, pulling the strings, enslaving people, reaping devastation, bringing war, saying, well, what is my point? When the children of Israel had to look up at a seraph on a pole, a bronze seraph, I think it was God's way in showing them the unseen evil that was present with them in the desert. They were showing in the serpent. It was a serpent who, who whispered words of discontent into the, first, into the ears of our first parents. And it was serpentine evil there in the desert that was whispering discontent into theirs. I hope I haven't lost you <laughs> if, you're, if you're tracking with me. See, I think that the Bible, it's just multi-layered. But it's never just one thing. Um, the Bible isn't just like a flat piece of paper. It's like a diamond. And when you look at one vantage point, you see it flickering this way. And you look at it another vantage point, you see it flickering this way. The serpent was the thing that was afflicting them. The serpent was also the thing behind the thing that was afflicting them. So what are we to make of John 3.14, 3.15, that Jesus would compare himself to a snake on a stick that's a seraph, like, we're like what's going on here? What, what could this possibly mean? Why, why would Jesus somehow speak and, and, and connect himself to, to demonic evil? Because hanging there on the cross, that's what you see. You see demonic evil. You see all, all that is wrong in this world. You see the very thing that is afflicting mankind. The demonic evil, this is what this is how it springs. Number one, it springs through betrayal. Have you ever watched Schindler's List? Can you imagine a Jewish brother handing over his own flesh and blood to the Nazis in Schindler's List? Because that's what happened to Jesus. He was betrayed 
by one of his closest friends. And the Last Supper, when he's in the seat of honor, the man who is seated directly next to him is the man who uh, is in the second seat of honor. That Jesus would have selected him to be in that spot, and it's none other than Judas Iscariot. He went off and betrayed him. It's betrayal number two. He hangs on a cross because of injustice. He hangs on a cross because the courts were rigged. Because the people in power and government had actually no concern for justice. For them, might makes right. And, and what is just is what we declare. He hangs there because, it's because of injustice. Number three, he hangs there on a cross because of oppression. Because people groups were enslaved by the empire. And the way that the empire would make a statement to all the rest of the world of this is what happens to you if you ever step out of line with us was torturing them publicly, um, humiliating them um, in, in front of a watching audience, oppression. Number four, he hung on a cross because, because of religious greed, because the priesthood had become corrupt, because the religious powers had sold out to greed, to power, to money, and left behind God and the poor of that day. The priests were most interested in money. When Jesus goes in at the beginning of that week and he turns over the tables, tables of the money changers, he upsets the economic system. And that's why he's crucified. And number five, he hangs on a cross because of this demonic dehumanization. Like when you see Jesus Christ, if you ever watched The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson, that really does give you a picture of what actually happened there. He's so bloodied. He's so tortured. Um, he's gasping for breath. He's, he hung there naked, and he hardly looks human because it was intended to bring about the complete dehumanization of the victim. The only thing that changes it, the, the, how do I put it, the, the one deviation in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was that normally the Romans would crucify you low, as in near ground level. They would crucify you just a few, you know, few feet off of the ground so that people could walk up to you, look you in the eye, and spit in your face. But Jesus Christ wasn't crucified on the ground. He was crucified up high. He's high and lifted up. He's taken to a hill that looks over upon the city of Jerusalem, and he's hoisted high up in the air. Now, who, whose idea was that? Was that the Jews' idea? No, that was most likely the Romans' idea. We'll, we'll, make, a, we'll make a real show of, of this man. We'll lift him high up on the hill like a flag at the top of the flagpole. Whose real idea was that? It was the Romans, but it was also the puppet masters behind them that was pulling the strings. That was the idea of the, of the fallen angels, but the seraphim. Because the sign of the cross was a sign that they had won. The sign of the cross was a sign that their victory was complete, that they had accomplished the unthinkable, that they had killed the only Son of God. And when you look up at that man on that cross and you see all that is hellish converging upon them, it was a sign. It was the banner for them to the whole universe that finally we have won. They think they have won. You know, the picture I told people before um, on Good Friday, that if you could just see past the seen world on Good Friday, around the foot of the cross, 
you could see into the spiritual world, but like I can just imagine like orcs um, and trolls just you know shouting maniacally their joy as they see him say it is finished. There's just this grand demonic revelry taking place around the cross. Only there is a deeper purpose at work. There is a John 3.16 purpose at work. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son on the cross. God gives his one and only son, his only begotten son, he gives him as a sacrifice for sin. As a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the world. When the demonic seraphim were killing Jesus, what they didn't realize is that they were also killing sin. That's exactly, that's like the, the glory of the cross, according to Paul. Colossians 3, verses 13, 14, and 15. But when they were killing Jesus, they were actually killing the power and penalties of sin. For God forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, big seraphim, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. They didn't know that the cross was meant by God to be their feet. So we've looked at the poison, we've looked at the anti-venom. Number three, how do you get it? And let's go back to Numbers 21 for a second. How do they get the benefits of the bronze serpent in Numbers 21? Moses, he made it pretty simple, didn't he? All you have to do is look. If you've been bitten, if you've got a fever, if your body is, is bloated up because you're poisoned and you're paralyzed, like all you got to do is look. He didn't say you have to climb up to the snake and touch it. If that were the case, like the agile and the strong ones could have done it, but the rest would have been lost. And he didn't say, well, you must walk over and touch the snake. Because if you were burning up with fever and paralyzed, even that might be too much for somebody. But anybody could look up. Anybody could look, no matter how sick they were. And you know, um, as a pastor, you know, the average person will, will come, to, come to me and come to church and they'll say, okay, I want to find God. I really want to find God now. What do I have to do? do I, should I start coming to worship? Fine, I'll do that. Should I stop sleeping around? Okay, all right. Should I stop taking drugs? Okay. What do you want me to do? And the answer is, <laughs> just look. All you got to do is look. There's a famous Baptist pastor, a British man, back in January of 1850. Charles Spurgeon was his name. He was uh, living in London, and he's walking to church on a Sunday morning. But there's a tremendous snowstorm blowing into London, and he's trying to beat off the wind. And it's bad enough that he ends up turning into a church that's on his way. It's a primitive Methodist chapel. He steps into the uh, to this church, um, and there are only 15 people there. Everybody else has been snowed out in London. Even the pastor of this primitive Methodist chapel is gone. He's been snowed out. So what does that mean? Well, it means some poor guy is going to have to preach who <laughs> hadn't had any time to prepare. And so I think it was the guy was like a deacon in their church, but he was also a shoemaker by trade. And he steps up into the pulpit and he says, um, I take as my passage Isaiah 45, verse 22. Look unto me and be saved, 
all the ends of the earth. Now, Charles Spurgeon at this point in his life was just this miserable, guilt-ridden um, man. He had absolutely no idea how God could accept a loser like him, at least that's how he felt about it. He just felt so far away from God, like there's nothing, no way, no way that I can be reconciled to God. And so the shoemaker, he's preaching. He says, my dear friends, this is a simple text indeed. It says to be saved, we only need to look. It, it ain't lifting your foot or your finger, it's just look. <laughs> you need to go to college to look. Even a child can look. You need to be worth a thousand pounds a year to look. Anyone can look. Ah, but the text says, look unto me. I now, many of you are looking to yourselves. There's no use looking there. Look unto me. And then Spurgeon went on to tell the story of his, um, this is his lost and found story, by the way. And he goes on to say, at this moment, the good man lifted his arms to the heavens and he began to cry. The Lord says, look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I will rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, look unto me. Amen. Yeah. And after that, the good man, he said, the good man had gone on for about 10 minutes like this, as long as he could. And he noticed me sitting um, under the gallery and with so few people there, he recognized that I, I was an outsider and a stranger. And he fixed his eyes on me and he said, young man, you look miserable and you will always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death until you obey my text. Young man, look. Look to Jesus Christ. You have nothing to do but look and live. He says, and when I heard that word, the cloud was finally gone. Like when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people who looked were healed, and so it was with me. I looked and I looked until I, I looked. I looked and I looked and looked until I almost could have looked my eyes away. I hope the next time that you see a caduceus, you'll view it differently. Yes, it's a universal symbol of medicine, uh, of healing. But to look at a caduceus meant that you had to face the thing that was afflicting you. And it showed you the way to be saved. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. Amen. Amen.